heart is just a big question. What is it? Mm -hmm. What is it doing? What is it for? What am I supposed to do when I'm in the presence of an artwork, whether it's a dance or a theatrical performance or a piece of music or a painting or, a, or an installation? Um, art always, in that sense, throws us back on ourselves, throws us back on what we think we know, throws us back on what we're taking for granted. And I actually think that's where it's, where it's knowledge-making resources really lie, that they, they, it, art gives us an opportunity to interrogate ourselves, finally, and in so doing, change ourselves. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 94. And this episode is with Alva Noe, who is professor of philosophy and also chair of the Department of Philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley, where he researches the philosophy of mind, and he primarily focuses on perception and consciousness, but then also the philosophy of art. And this is an episode that I've really been looking forward to for quite some time. I think uh, Alva and I were first in contact maybe in January or February, so I'm really glad that we finally got to have this conversation. We don't talk so much about the philosophy of mind in this episode. It is largely about the philosophy of art, which is awesome. Uh, that is a very underrepresented topic on the podcast, though. My episode with Graham Harmon just will have come out uh, a few episodes prior. But Alva is not only the author of two books in the area, uh, Strange Tools, Art and Human Nature, and then also Look, dispatches from the art world. But on June 23rd, 2023, his latest book, The Entanglement, How Art and Philosophy Make Us What We Are, is going to be coming out with Princeton University Press. So this is the main topic of our conversation today, not just uh, the entanglement, but also the content of strange tools and look. And the main just since, the, I mean, there are so many uh, different uh, directions in which we go, is that we discuss the interrelationship between art, uh, philosophy, phenomenology, and I'd also throw neuroscience or cognitive science in there as well. Uh, but there's also plenty of specifics. So at one point, we go pretty in-depth into one of Rembrandt's paintings, which is called The Anatomy Lesson. And it's, it came up for me because it was, as I think I say in the episode, uh, it was a painting I had used for an early album art with an episode with uh, David Albert on the philosophy of time, I believe it was, not space, that episode. But anyway, it's a terrific painting, and you might want to just have a look at it, um, if not now, then, then while we're talking about it, because I think that will make the discussion that much more enlightening. So you'll want to check out The Entanglement on June 23rd. Then you should also look at Alva's website, which is alvanoe.com. And then he's also on Twitter at alvanoe. So smash the like button, the subscribe. Uh, I guess you could also smash at random keys and leave a comment. That would also be nice. Though if they were less random and more targeted, that could be uh, preferable but you type how you want to type. Now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as Pins, the podcat, was just enjoying licking her left foot, and also as much as I enjoyed having it without. 
you're best known, at least to me, as a philosopher of mind, and more particularly of consciousness and perception. So when and how was it that philosophy of art became such an important part of your work? Or was it there embedded in the philosophy of mind somehow all along? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, it's, a, it's a friendly question for me because it, it lets me sort of reflect on how I got to where I am in a sort of an open way. Um, I think that I think that I've always been very interested in the arts and puzzled by them, puzzled by the question of why they are valuable to us in the ways that they are. Um, That's always been an interest of mine. But when I wrote my first first book, which was called Action and Perception, I wasn't thinking about art at all, although, although there are some passing references. Um, I was really thinking about perception and perceptual consciousness. And in that book, I, I developed the idea that the best way to think about perception and perceptual consciousness was by putting them back into the sort of landscape of the whole active perceiving embodied animal. Um, so thinking of perceiving itself as something we use our eyes and our head and our body, as well as our expectations about the effects of what we do with our body to, to make sense of experience as this kind of temporally extended activity rather than as something that happens inside of us. Um, and I mentioned that, so that's a little bit of a chunk of words, but I mentioned that because that idea caught the attention of artists. Uh, so my book, Action Perception, which was written you know, in an MIT neuroscience imprint, philosophy, cognitive science, and neuroscience imprint, ended up being read by a lot of people in the arts who reached out to me and were interested in what this kind of inactive way of thinking about perception had to do with the way they thought about what they were doing as artists. And this was especially true of dance artists. So I started getting um, invitations to meet with dancers, to meet with choreographers. Um, and they wanted to meet with me because they were curious what I could teach them. But what quickly became clear to me anyway was that I had a lot to learn from them. And I became very interested in trying to understand what is this work that they're doing? How do they think about or measure its success? What kinds of knowledge and understanding is it producing? And that got me on the path of thinking about, you know, what is art and why does it matter to us? And what does the ways that it matter, matters to us tell us about ourselves? Um, but there's one last, last comment I'd like to make about this. Um, some years ago, a philosopher asked me, so you've given up philosophy of mind, haven't you? Mm -hmm. And it really kind of took me by surprise because all along I felt that this work I was doing, engaging with art and artistic practice and thinking about the nature of aesthetic experience was a way of going deeper into the nature of perception and consciousness rather than sort of changing, changing fields, if you like. So I still think of myself as a philosopher of mind. Um, and certainly my training, my formation as a student and as, a, you know, as an assistant professor was working in that subculture within philosophy rather than in the aesthetics subculture. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you mention that the artists reading your work on perception was what in some way drew your philosophical attention. 
to the arts because I spoke on Friday with a very prominent contemporary continental metaphysician, Graham Harmon, whose work on uh, what's called object-oriented ontology, so uh, metaphysics, was read by architects and artists, and then he got a job. Now he teaches at SciArc in Los Angeles, which is a, a cutting-edge architectural school where he does a lot of philosophy of art. So it's interesting that that's what brought you uh, over a bit as well to writing about that. I mean, so much of what happens in philosophy, which is exciting, I think at least, happens when philosophy is fertilized by what is not philosophy, or when philosophers discover the opportunities of philosophy in new areas or, or new domains. That was always my approach to philosophy of mind and cognitive science, too. I was, I was fascinated by what the non-philosophical intelligence of scientists could bring to the study of perception, um, which I took for granted was a philosophically rich and important, and important topic. The other thing about architects and about artists in general is that they are um, in a kind of undisciplined way, always foraging for stuff they can use for, for information that will give them inspiration for their creative practices. So it's actually um, not that hard <laughs> to be a philosopher who, who kind of can establish a relationship with, with artists because they're a, they're like a very friendly audience in a way, um, with a few maybe possible exceptions. There's ways of thinking about that that are different. But the question for me was how to make that be productive, how to make it be not just productive for them, but productive for me. Well, in talking about this relationship between uh, philosophy and uh, what's outside of philosophy, in the preface to Strange Tools, which I think is your your first book uh, on art and philosophy, you write that science and philosophy, to the extent that they concern themselves with art, tend to do so from on high. They seek to explain art, to treat art as a phenomenon to be analyzed. And then you contrasted this with the idea that art is its own manner of investigation and its own legitimate source of knowledge. And I found this to be a very striking dichotomy. And I was hoping you could elaborate a bit on this distinction between what I'll refer to as, I guess, maybe an analytic approach to art, one that tries to to break it down, and then one which takes art as a source of knowledge in itself. And what one thing just to add to that, that I found quite interesting about this is, I guess I see you at least in the philosophy of mind as as working pretty squarely in the analytic tradition where things are sort of broken down as opposed to working in the continental tradition where things maybe come out of uh, perception, which is taken as, as given, but, but that seems to be much more your approach to art and the philosophy of art. Right. Art is, art is just a big question. Art is just a big question. What is it? Mm -hmm. What is it doing? What is it for? What am I supposed to do when I'm in the presence of an artwork, whether it's a dance or a theatrical performance or a piece of music or a painting or, a, or an installation? Um, art always, in that sense, throws us back on ourselves, throws us back on what we think we know, throws us back on what we're taking for granted. And I actually think that's where it's, where it's knowledge making 
resources really lie that they they art gives us an opportunity to interrogate ourselves finally and in so doing change ourselves um art is unstable and always resistant to any kind of definitions um i think that the best philosophers of art whether analytic or in other traditions get that um mm -hmm. i think a philosopher for example who really gets that is kant um kant wants to say that we don't know artworks the way we know what's going on around us perceptually because the artwork precisely is something that is really just an opportunity for feelings that can't be subsumed under any kind of concepts, not the concept of beauty or any other concept. So we're in a different space than judgment, than categorization when we're in the space of art. Um, and yet our whole beings for him, he talked about the free play of the imagination and the understanding, our whole beings are brought to bear and trying to grapple with this thing that we see that we can't categorize that doesn't, you know, when I see this pen, the pen tells my cognitive system what to do, but the artwork uh, confuses my cognitive system. The cognitive system uh -huh. needs to say, what do I do? And that's, that's where the, where the opportunity comes to us. Yeah. That, that's uh, actually exactly where I was going to go next. And it, I mean, it's this, the title of that first book, Strange Tools, because the pen is a, is a tool that tells you uh, precisely what to do with it. But you write that art isn't a technological practice, practice, but that works of art are strange tools. Right. Right. That's, um, I mean, that in a way was, is one of the really interesting puzzles about art, all artistic practices are making practices. They involve drawing or staging or performing or, you know, putting together. Um, they, they involve manufacture, they involve tools, they involve, you know, skill and craft and knowledge and, and purpose on the part of the maker. And yet artworks are only in very unusual circumstances, things of which you can say they have a clear application or function. Um, they tend to be, artworks tend to be things that precisely defy function, defy purpose, defy teleology, which is another aspect of they're not falling under concepts in any straightforward kind of way. So the, um, the thought I so the question I, I asked myself is, why is art so involved with making? if the ordinary standards or criteria of successful making don't apply. Because normally, you know, if I buy a car, I want a car which meets certain standards. It, it's reliable, it's inexpensive to drive, it handles well. And I can really enumerate, it has to be big enough for my family. Um, I can enumerate and be very explicit about what I'm looking for in a car and what would make the car a good instance of its kind. You can never do that with a work of art. I mean, you can in a kind of context, in a sort of conditional sense that if you're within a certain artwork context, you might say, oh, this artwork is trying to do this. And then you can think about how well or not it achieves yeah. that. But from the point of view of the, the visitor to a gallery, the artwork is an intrinsically uncaptioned object, which just says to you, what am I? See if you can make sense of me. 
Um, and yet it's working in this space of making. So I had this idea that artworks are not so much special things that we make, but they're things that we make in order to explore the way making is special for us. We are makers as human beings. Um, everything, we, our entire environments are these elaborately constructed manufactured systems which organize us and in effect, in part constitute us for we ourselves, our animal lives, our personalities, our social lives are from a certain point of view, really complex nested structures of habit, all of which depends on the way they're scaffolded by tools and technologies. So the idea I had is that let's think about artworks as using tool making, using that now as a phrase to really describe the whole way in which human life is organized by technology through, through vast stretches of historical and prehistorical time. Think of art as using tool making as a raw material. So it's not just, we're not just making more tools when we're artists, but we're putting tool making as such on display and we're unveiling ourselves as tool users to ourselves. We're, again, that's shorthand for unveiling to ourselves a whole myriad of ways in which we find ourselves habitually organized. Um, so a work of art is a strange tool. It's a tool which lacks what a tool ordinarily requires to be what it is, namely an established function and a setting in which it has application. When I walk to the door, I don't need to think about how to open it. Not because I'm so smart, not because any of us are so smart. The door was designed with a handle to fit my hand by people like me for people like me. Tools are always like that. A tool presupposes a setting in which a tool can be self-evident or obvious or something on which we can rely. That's never the case with art. So art happens in a kind of space where, where technology is denied. Hmm. I think that it would be helpful for me to talk about some particular examples. And I mean, your, your next book, Learning to Look, is <laughs> filled with uh, a plethora of them. And this is just anecdotal, but for the first like 60 or 70 or so episodes that I did of this podcast, I made album art for every episode in which I just Photoshopped uh, my face and the face of my guest into a uh, famous painting. There were lots of Rembrandts. Uh, Noam Chomsky requested a Rembrandt, uh, but, but one Rembrandt in particular that you write about is the anatomy lesson. And I used that, um, that painting for an episode with David Albert, I think on like the philosophy of time, but what was philosophically salient about this particular painting for you? And I guess I also just wonder if, if it at all applies to this notion of strange tools, like what it, what it teaches us about ourselves, how we use it as a strange tool. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, let me, let me just preface 
preface my, my reply to you by saying that these ideas, like this analysis of art in terms of strange tools, it operates at different, it can operate at different levels. Okay. And one of the things I'm thinking about often is, is sort of art in relation to the person who's confronted by art. You know, you're wandering through a gallery and all of a sudden you see this thing. What do you make of it? How do you even start to make anything of it? And so there's a kind of, I, I want to say that there's almost a kind of an existential opportunity there for you to do something. The work of art itself doesn't do anything. You have to figure out how to turn it on. You can't find the on button. You don't even know where to start. Where do I put my money in to like make it start doing something for me? I have to figure that out myself. But that said, a lot of art, in a way, is operating not just kind of um, along one dimension, art viewer, it's also in dialogue with other art. And it's referring, so a painting, for example, by Rembrandt is making a move in a space of painters against the context of lots of other painting and the whole history of painting. And his sense of, you know, what the, what the art world, such as he knows it, requires of him. So there's just lots of different ways in which the art can be doing its work and lots of places it can find its work. So the thing that blew me away about that particular painting is um, it seemed to be a kind of direct intervention into epistemology. It's, the first thing is it's a display. For those of you who don't know it, it's, um, it's, it's an actual anatomy lesson of an actual Dutch physician. Um, and it's a portrait of, of the doctor lecturing over a cadaver to his students. Um, and he's holding, actually I don't have the image in front of me, but he's, he's holding uh, with one hand or he's gesturing to the hand of the cadaver with one hand, indicating the way in which the tendons and musculature are displayed and showing with his own hand how it works. Um, so it's a kind of it's an it's an exploration of the anatomy and physiology of the of the arm. Um, what's very interesting is that what, what what captured my attention was where are the students looking? Are they actually looking at what he's gesturing at? And what some of them are, but a number of them are looking past his hand, past the cadaver. And if you follow the gaze to see what they're looking at, what they're looking at is a book, which is opened up. They're using a drawing or they're using text. They're using what was like the, you know, um, PowerPoint of the day to illuminate whatever the ideas are that he's describing. So it's as, almost as if the artist is inviting us to look at the way in which our own experience of complex reality is transmitted or opened up or made available to us through using graphical means, which is, of course, what the picture itself is doing. It's giving us this elaborate graphical construction and letting us deal with its opacities as best as we can by trying to find ways to see into it. There's a very interesting question about which there's disagreement, I believe, in the art historical record, 
about whether Rembrandt's own rendering of the anatomy is accurate. Um, and I actually honestly don't remember how history sides on that or how, how there's a number of physicians that have written pieces about it. But what's interesting to me is that it isn't self-evident that even somebody with as well-trained an eye as Rembrandt could know by seeing what he is seeing. Seeing requires more than just sensory stimulation. It requires a kind of understanding that you bring to the task at hand. Anyway, so without trying to be dogmatic and suggest that this painting is actually making one specific sort of argument over another, I think it's exploring these ideas and doing other things as well. There's references to the patrons and some of the students are looking at the audience in some ways honoring the audience. Um, there's probably lots of other stories you could tell about the picture, but that was the one that captured my attention. Yeah, and as I'm looking at it right now, uh, everybody's gaze is really going in a different direction. And it just makes me think that there was clearly uh, some purpose behind this because Rembrandt didn't, I mean, things don't really happen by accident when you're a master painter like this. That's right. It's stage. That's a, that's a really interesting point too. Every work of art, whether it's a painting or whether it's a, a theatrical production, is is the result of indefinitely many decisions that are being mm -hmm. made either consciously or unconsciously. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we're confronted with when we're confronted with an artwork is you know, what should I pay attention to? What in this work is worth noticing? Um, and Something that fascinates me, and this fascinates me as a philosopher of perception as well as as a philosopher of art, is how difficult it is to pay attention. <laughs> how difficult it is to know it to pay attention to. Absolutely. And so one way you can think about, about um, an artwork, and this is an idea actually that's been explored by others, is the artwork is almost a sort of a kind of tutorial in how to see it. The artwork ideally gives you some resources so that you can notice something and then once you notice something you're off to the races because the work starts then displaying more and more once you once you figure out a an angle of approach I've, mm -hmm. i i discussed this in, in so many different pieces of writing and i i can see we're ready for another question but let me just throw something out to you really quick oh no you're fine i'm amazed by this by this this experience of I mean, choose, choose your artistic modality. I like to think of a gallery, but it can be a concert. It can be a record album. It doesn't really matter. This experience you have of you enter the room and there's many different paintings on the wall, but they're just kind of indistinct for you. They haven't really popped for you. They haven't announced themselves or fascinated you. They all kind of look ah, just kind of paintings on the wall or maybe they even all sort of look the same. That's especially true to the extent that the paintings are unfamiliar to you, the style or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you if you if you find that on switch, if you ask questions of the paintings, if you put money in the meter, um, all of a sudden they start to show themselves. These entirely flat objects begin to reveal hidden depths. So what's going on there? Nothing was actually hidden. You know, that's the beautiful thing about a painting. It's a flat surface. Nothing is hidden, which is a, a phrase that Wittgenstein liked to use. 
nothing is hidden, and yet through a certain kind of active looking, things pop out. New material reveals itself. We see more. We, we make a movement from not seeing to seeing more or from seeing to seeing differently. And that, that movement, for me, is the very essence of what we call the aesthetic. Right now, I'm reading a novel, uh, Them, uh, by Joyce Carol Oates. I don't know if you've read it, but I'm I'm struck by, as I listen to you, how it is also uh, figuratively a flat surface in that, I mean, everything is there apparent for me. But as I'm reading, I still have this same problem that you have or that I have when looking at the anatomy lesson, which is what I'm supposed to pay attention to. And one other way that maybe we haven't, that hasn't come up, one way the artwork is a strange tool is that when you examine what it is that you naturally end up paying attention to without instruction, it tells you something about yourself uh, and what your interests are. So I find myself very much in them gravitating toward uh, the passages that deal with uh, masculinity and sexuality, because I guess those are uh, things that are more interesting to me. So I see the, the novel as something that teaches me about myself in this way. And it's a strange tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I think one of the, one of the distinctive features of art as opposed to mere entertainment, although one and the same thing can be art and entertainment, so these are, these are themselves entangled notions, but is that art, I, I think, doesn't, it, how do I put this? Entertainment meets you where you are and gives you what you want. It's like the massage you paid for. It scratches the itch that you have. Mm-hmm. Art disrupts your expectations about what you want. It frustrates you, not necessarily um, explicitly, like you can listen to a piece of music and not feel frustrated, but if the music is, is working, it's because it's making choices that um, are revealing. Um, and they're revealing in part because of how they defy the easier way of solving the problem or the easier way of, of, of making the, the, the move. So there's, there are so many books, novels, dealing with, in which masculinity and sex are big themes, but that won't teach you anything about yourself. They'll just uh, mm-hmm. titillate you. Do you think about art's role as a strange tool mainly from the perspective of the viewer? Or do you also write and think about it from the perspective of uh, the creator? That's a very difficult question. I mean, the answer is I, I want to think about it from both sides. I think there's a dialogue there. I think a philosopher who thinks really deeply and I think and helpfully about this is Dewey, 
who appreciates that there's a sense in which, you know, we talked about decisions before. There's a sense in which the viewer of a work of art has to kind of reverse engineer the decisions that went into its into its making. Not has to, but that's a sort of a very natural way of thinking about the way in which the the material that's at work in the artwork are made available to the perceiver of the artwork. Um, the problem about the problem about this which point of view question is at least the problem for me is that I don't want to make any assumptions about what the artist is actually actually as a matter of psychology or psychological history thinking about. Um, artists, you know, it may be that it may be that Rembrandt wasn't thinking about any of the things that I was just talking about, that these ideas would have felt strange to him. I don't think that this, I think it'd be very unlikely, but it's possible. And it wouldn't, from my point of view, necessarily invalidate the interpretation I'm offering because my interpretation is not an interpretation of Rembrandt. It's an engagement with the work and the work either lives on its own or it doesn't live at all. Um, and yet, what an artist is, so, and, and then on top of that, artists are always going to have problems that they're trying to solve or things that they're working on. They'll have their own story about what they're doing. Um, you know, when a, when a contemporary artist has a gallery show, they write an artist statement. Um, and the gallery circulates it to the people who visit the gallery. Is that useful? It's definitely a hook and a crutch for the viewer when they get to the gallery, because they can use the artist statement to orient themselves in relation to the work. Oh, this artist was thinking about this and made these works like that. That gives me a, a point of access. But um, I guess, I guess in a way, I think artists' work may be a bit mysterious to themselves. Um, I think that goes for philosophy too. Philosophers are often totally gripped by a problem and they, they, they investigate it and they argue with each other about it and they make huge inroads into carving out new language for thinking about it. What are they really doing and what have they really accomplished? Those questions can still be asked and must be asked by anybody trying to engage with the work. So I, I, I haven't answered you very well. I, I think that there's a really interesting tension between how to think about artwork from these two different points of view as maker and as sort of consumer. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess what I'm asking is you described the situation where the viewer uh, steps into the gallery and they look at the painting and it's a very existential moment for them. And that's where the painting is this strange tool. But I also wonder how the painting functions for the artist as the artist creates it as a strange tool. And maybe... Maybe your work with the dance uh, project, uh, Motion Bank, 
I think is what it was called, uh, might shed some light on this because my understanding is that you, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that you helped them with their choreography on some level. And I imagine that on the one hand, they're trying to build something for their audience so that their audience uh, has this existential moment. But at the same time, they're exploring something for themselves. The Motion Bank Project was very, very interesting. It was actually the brainchild of William Forsythe, the choreographer. And in a weird way, it approaches the question you're raising from, a, from an angle. He, he was really concerned to help artists, dancers and choreographers themselves appreciate the intellectual and cognitive complexity of their own work um, by finding ways to notate, annotate, document, make scores that would reveal how much is going on uh, in the artwork. Um, as, a, as a participant, dance is, dance is a really interesting case because dancers aren't just people who move. They're people who solve problems with each other using their bodies and space on the stage. They are constantly performing tasks. One choreographer I know, Lisa Nelson, talked about the task of the dancer as being to survive the performance because there's so many choices that they need to make. It's, it's not even clear where the artwork is in the dance performance. Um, you know, we talked about from the point of view of the maker, from the point of view of the audience. Like, where does the making happen? Does the making happen on the stage live during the performance? Or does it happen during the six-week period in which the performance is, is devised through endless rehearsal and experimentation? And when they are on the stage, are they, I mean, they're obviously to some extent in the moment, but they're also grappling with um with all the work that has gone into the past. And there's a weird way in which when the audience is seeing the piece, they're seeing into a world which exceeds what is just on the stage because it's the product of this much more lengthy practice of work that the artists are doing. Think of it, you know, like a, um, a guitarist or a rock musician or something. You hear one song, that song mm -hmm. it could be thought of as the tip of the iceberg of a creative making work life practice um, to which you are learning to be sensitive as you learn to hear this song. And then you hear other songs and hear how they all fit together or how they differ from each other or explore related themes or related techniques or related ways of instrumentation or whatever it might be. You know, let me let me take a step back though from your question because I feel like I I've been struggling in my own mind to 
feel like what it is I really want to say. And I guess what I want to say is whatever motivates the artist, whatever groove they feel, or whatever inspiration they have, or whatever drive to expression that they have, finally the value of what they're doing exceeds any of that. It happens in this intersubjective space because they've done something which, whether it's a painting or a poem or a song or, or a ballet dance, they've done something which now others need to make sense of. And there is no algorithm or recipe or caption or description or artist notes that solve that problem for the viewer. Mm-hmm. The viewer has to solve something solve something on their, on their own. And in that sense, the viewer is also the artist. So the artist becomes the viewer of the thing that they have made. So the artist has to say, what is this thing I've done? Why does it matter? And it's just not enough of an answer to say, well, I was feeling X or Y when I was making it. That might be interesting and true, but that never gives the answer to this question. What are the sources of its value? These two questions that you asked, what is this thing and why does it matter? It brings me back to the the beginning again, I think, of Strange Tools, where you write that art is at its core a philosophical practice. Do you see it in this way because art inspires I mean, these very deep, to use your word again, existential questions? So it makes you ask, what is this thing? Why does it matter? Uh, what does it say about me? Um, this constellation of questions. Right. Um, I think that, I mean, I've, I've, I'm now repeating a little bit what I've already said, but the interesting thing is that the artwork has value and yet it's, it's, a, uh, it's hard to say what it consists in especially given that it has no clear application. And the the opportunity to confront this, I know not what it is, namely the artwork, is I think inevitably an opportunity to reorganize ourselves. Because our ordinary seeing is so much a a matter of habit and a matter of, of sort of spontaneity. The artwork interrupts that and says, whoa, don't just rely on habit. Don't just think you know what you're seeing. Stop. Try to see me. Try to make sense of this thing, which is the thing I am. See me if you can, I say, is the sort of slogan of the artwork. If the the artwork could talk, it would say, see me if you can. Um, And I think that, um, I think that actually philosophy is in very much the same business. It works in a totally different neighborhood of our lives with, with words and argument and ideas. But philosophy is always making us stop. Stop just talking. Stop just thinking we know and start reflecting on everything we're taking for granted. And and in doing that, make our habitual ways of being strange again to ourselves. And in the face of that, in the face of the kinds of puzzling landscapes we build in philosophy, I think we need to reorganize ourselves just as we do in the face of an artwork so mm-hmm. that philosophy becomes an occasion for a kind of 
freeing ourselves from the ways we have been carrying on and doing things differently. Um, when you read a philosophical text, except in unusual circumstances, you don't read it for the information. You don't read it for the result. There are some exceptions to that, perhaps. But generally, you don't read it for the bottom line, for what is proved or what is demonstrated. The journey matters. Why does it matter? Well, because we're interested in the journey. But what is the journey? The journey is, is, um, is like a playground or a space for us to think and work ourselves. So for me, a philosophical book or piece of writing or article is is more like a musical score than it is like a scientific treatise. It's an opportunity for us to play along, to, and, and it wants us to play along. And some that sometimes we will and sometimes we won't. Sometimes it's really cool to play this, but it's not cool to play that, or over historical time, things come in and out of fashion. Who wants to play this anymore? But it's not just a simple matter of, oh, this was established, and then this was established, and then this was established. I need to know all that. No. If I'm a jazz musician, I need to get into what's happening now. And in order to get into what's happening now, I need to be in touch with this historical setting, but not because that's the right way and that's the wrong way. Mm -hmm. um, please. Oh, I find that, that answer very striking and very satisfying, the idea that uh, both philosophy and art make us stop and reevaluate, and they make life strange again. Right. That that's very nice. And but in in making life strange again, free us from what it means when life isn't strange. Because <laughs> when life isn't strange, it's because you're on automatic pilot. Yeah. And when life is strange, you it, it's it's um it's like being freed from the metronome and allowed to really be in the present, which is of course something that's really hard for people to do. Mm -hmm. Now, I know philosophers, I think a lot of philosophers won't be sympathetic to what I'm saying. They think, oh, we, you know, we, we do make progress and we are making discoveries and we are increasing our knowledge. And there's ways in which that's, that's true. But I think the fundamental thing we're doing is generating opportunities for growth and change in ourselves and thus in our whole culture. So this way of thinking about art and philosophy is they're both, I call them reorganizational practices. And they're both really generators of cultural change. This uh, strikes me as an apt time to bring up the last chapter in Learning to Look. And I suppose it was inevitable that art and neuroscience would connect at some point in this conversation. But I didn't know that neuroscientists really studied the connection between the brain and art, though I probably should have. And I'm wondering what the story is here and why you write that neuroscience cannot bring art into focus. Well, the context in which I said that is, um, this goes back to the very beginning of our conversation. Um, uh, art, Art is art defies categories. Um, you can't put it under glass. It won't sit there. It won't stay put. 
I don't think we ourselves will stay put either. So one of the things that goes on is that scientists interested in art have sort of thought they can apply what we know about how the brain works, how the visual system works, um, like human psychology, and apply it to this thing called art to understand how art works. And we can we can think about we can think about the question of how art works in different ways. Um, we could think about about the way in which works of art act on our sensory systems. We could think about what goes on in us when we have an aesthetic experience. Um, but my concern is that in order to study what's going on in us when we're having an aesthetic experience, you need to operationalize what an aesthetic experience is. You need to have some definition of that. But I think art refuses that. I think aesthetic experience, this passage from not seeing to seeing or from seeing to seeing differently, which I talked about, refuses being um, summed up. Some scientists have suggested, well, a good proxy for aesthetic experience might be how moving the experience is. But of course, there's lots of experiences that are moving that are not distinctively aesthetic. And there's lots of aesthetic experiences that are remarkably unmoving. They're cool. They're like... You know, like looking at a Solowit painting, it's it's not an emotional experience. It's a very quiet, almost intellectual kind of experience. So you can do that. You can look at what happens in the brain when we're moved by something and then say, let's just treat that as a proxy for what happens in the brain when we have an aesthetic experience. But as far as I'm concerned, you've thrown out the interesting features of the notion of aesthetic experience. Um, and in general, aesthetic experiences are, are strangely um, hard to pin down. You know, when does your aesthetic experience of, of the anatomy lesson of Rembrandt start and stop? Only while you're looking at it? Or are we still having it while we talk about it? And when you read a poem, does the aesthetic experience last for the duration of the reading? Or does it live throughout the lifetime of thinking and reflection and conversation about the poem? Um, are aesthetic experiences always positive? Are they sometimes negative? Can they be terrifying? I mean, there's just so much. So aesthetic experience, to me, it's more, to, to have an aesthetic experience is more like to come into relationship with something. And relationships have good aspects and, and bad aspects, and they, they can't really be pinned down. So this is what I mean when I say that the work, the, the neuroscience don't even really succeed quite in figuring out what it is they're studying. In that sense, they don't bring the subject matter into focus. Or another example of this is a lot of a lot of so-called neurostatisticians look at the way in which the work of art affects our sensory systems. So people have reflected on the way in which, you know, the, when you perceive a mandrian, you do so by deploying your color vision abilities, and that's true. Of course, um, it's true of everything that when you see it, you deploy your 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 color vision. Um, what's distinctive? What's distinctive about the encounter with the stimulus, which happens to also be an artwork that that always falls through the falls through the the mix. Um, the bigger picture here, I think, is a if a, a a false confidence that 
we have an adequate neurobiological conception of ourselves. And we think we can then just apply that to this, this new problem area. We can apply it to ethics and we can apply it to love and now we're gonna apply it to art. Um, but art, at least I, I've been arguing, is a domain in which we investigate ourselves. Um, and indeed, a way, a, a domain in which the very activity of investigating ourselves changes us because art reorganizes us. So neither art nor we are stable in the way that neuroscience wants us to be. Right. It strikes me as something that I spoke about with Graham Harmon. He has problems with this literalist view of an artwork that it is just like the qualities of the object but really it is so much more than that and like you said it's shifting the art is also our investigation of ourselves and it can't just be reduced to uh the colors and and shapes on a on a canvas that's that's i would agree with that but i'd go further and this is really one of the main themes of this newest book of mine which is coming out in a few weeks, in June of 2023, uh, the entanglement is that I think that we really are ourselves for the kinds of reasons I've just been laying out, made and remade by our own efforts artistically to represent ourselves to ourselves. Um, as we engage in artwork, we reorganize ourselves. And when we study ourselves and study our perceptual experience, we end up taking up an attitude to ourselves very much like the attitude we take to artworks. So something like perceptual experience isn't easy to, to specify or to make determinate. Um, there's lots of things we can say about it, but there's, there's um, the kinds of formulas that we tend to use when we're doing philosophy of perception or cognitive science, you know, red circle against a white background, um, woefully underdescribe what we see. Thus, they woefully underdescribe what it is we want to understand if we, if we want to be scientists of ourselves. And I think the answer there is to realize that the when we take up an attitude to our own experience, we stand in relation to our experience of some, something like that to which we stand when we're reflecting on, on artworks themselves. Aesthetic experience is a kind of, sorry, a perceptual experience generally is a kind of aesthetic problem. Um, and then, so then the question is, does this mean that there can't really be a science of ourselves? And this takes us back to, you know, a question you asked me at the beginning of how did I get from philosophy of mind to, to thinking about art. Um, it's hard not to be impressed as a student of cognitive psychology or, or neuroscience by the, um, by the finely unsatisfactory state of our, of our knowledge. Um, it's tempting to say that, you know, there's, there's nothing in the domain of cognitive psychology that stands to that knowledge in that domain like you know, Watson and Crick's discovery of the st structure of, of DNA. Um, 
it just had lots and lots and lots of facts, lots and lots and lots of information. And it doesn't add up to anything, I think, like a deep knowledge of what the mind is or, or how it works. Um, people have said, and they've been saying for hundreds of years now, that this is just because psychology is young. It's a new science. But one of the ideas I'm exploring in this in this new book is that actually, um, as aesthetic beings whose very nature is being made and, and remade by our investigations of ourselves, uh, we can't. We're the one thing that can't be quite pinned down and studied. Um, and this has the consequence for me that not that there can't be a, a science of human beings, but that it's got to, from the very start, take seriously the place of the aesthetic in thinking about what it is to be a human being. Um, and I think that's something which hasn't really begun, hasn't really happened yet. I don't think anybody's really willing to do that yet. Turning to the entanglement, which you said is coming out in June, I really, I mean, the first thing that jumped out at me is that I really love the name, <laughs> not just because it seems quite apt for anything about philosophy, but because it's so much less dry than most philosophy books. But is the idea behind the title related to what we were just talking about before RoboCop and how sort of art is intertwined with our life and it keeps remaking us yeah, and yeah. making us all over again? Yeah, I think the, you know, obviously I think a lot of readers when they see entanglement will think, oh, do I mean sort of quantum entanglement or the sorts of the sorts of phenomena that are discussed in, in, in modern physics? And I'm clear in the book that that's, that's, that's not what it's about. Really the target is, um, a curious kind of way in which we are made up by the ways in which our own artistic and philosophical representations of ourselves loop down and change us so that we become these sort of locuses of, of entanglement. Um, and uh, I, in the book, I look at different, different examples of it. So sort of a, a kind of a, a fairly uncontroversial kind of example of it. That, that I really like in the book is where I talk about dancing. And interesting, because dancing is interesting because so many people love to dance and dancing is this thing, you know, non-trained dancers can do and it's, it's fun and it's this, you know, it's this cultural currency that we share together of dancing together. But if you watch a person dance, almost without exception, What's striking is that the way they dance when they're spontaneously just having fun is informed by and shaped by ideas they have about what dancing looks like, about what dancing is. Um, mm -hmm. Ideas that usually can be fairly obviously traced back to the work of dance makers who were not just dancing, but were choreographers. Um, so the way we dance is, is spontaneously entangled with choreography. Um, where does dance stop and choreography begin? Well, in fact, they're entangled. So when kids are dancing, they're doing something that resonates choreographically. And when choreographers make 
choreographic works, their fundamental raw materials is people dancing. They're making art right, out right. of dancing. So, so um, now if you if you wanted to think of dancing as sort of natural, and choreography as art, well, here, art and life are entangled. Mm-hmm. And that's an example that I look at. It sort of runs through 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 the book. Another example I explore is is um, writing and speech. Yeah. Um, another example I explore is pictoriality and vision. Um, we our own experience of our own visual experience is very often, not always, but in a wide variety of cases, framed in terms of pictorial ideas. Um, But pictures are thought of as a kind of resource for framing and thinking about what we see. At least that's one way of thinking about pictures. So here this, this visual apparatus, the picture, ends up altering vision itself and vision and pictoriality become through historical time entangled. Um, so, so the thought is that we ourselves, wherever you look, are entangled and in different dimensions and in different ways, but with the upshot that it's difficult or impossible to say, Oh, here, this is the natural bit of us that, you know, mere evolution and mere biology can explain. And this is the cultural bit of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as you're speaking, I'm just thinking about all the ways in which my own life is entangled with art and how it affects me. I mean, reading uh, Joyce Carol Oates this morning or uh, listening to The Counting Crows a little later, and then how that turns into art that I may create myself right hmm. um now no ahead. no please oh you you please well um you know one of the one of the ideas that was already quite articulated in in um strange tools is the idea that you know the way heidegger put it is we're a problem to ourselves the way Wittgenstein put it is, we're lost. We don't know our way around. Um, and we philosophize and make art as a response to that. We, the artworks we make, the philosophical theories we generate, we make in a way to orient ourselves. Um, but they end up changing us for all the reasons that we've been discussing. Um, so that we live and in a way have always lived in an art world and in a philosophy world, which makes us products of art, products of philosophy, not, not natural things we just stumble upon, but projects that require right. interpretation rather than um, I don't know, something like your explanation. So much of our slang and colloquial language comes from music. The way we dress comes from 
movies uh, and so on right there's a there's a quote from uh, from a famous fluxus artist named uh, Filiou that I give in the book which is that Oh, now I don't remember the quote. It's um, art helps us. Art is what lets us see that life is more important than art. But it's art that lets us see that life is more important than art. We make art out of life, and art changes life. Um, and that goes for, I think, for art in a very broad sense, broad sense of the term. Another quote that really st- stuck out at me, and it was in the first chapter of your book, which I found very provocative, but in a good way, is when you, you quote R.G. Collingwood saying that art is the primary and fundamental activity of the human mind. And I'm wondering where this comes from. So when I spoke with Graham Harmon, we spoke about how performance art might have been the first art of all, as it might have sort of co-evolved with our theory of mind and our understanding of pretense. And when you write that art is so primitive in agreeing with R.G. Collingwood, is this sort of what you had in mind something with regard to imitation and representation? Actually, no. Um, Remember, I think art happens wherever we find ourselves trapped by our habitual ways of being. In that sense, art is a kind of ironic thing it's art always presupposes it's always doing something against the background of what is not art namely life um so when i make a when i make a a comment or tell a joke and use language in surprising or unexpected ways. Well, it's only surprising or unexpected against the background of familiar habitual ways of using language. Um, So I think that from the very beginning, we've, just as from the very beginning we've been telling jokes, from the very beginning we've been using language and gesture to put ourselves on display to each other and to ourselves. Um, It may be performance. It might be a joke. It may be a drawing. Um, But again, just because it's a drawing doesn't make it art in this sense. I might make a diagram on the ground where the meaning of the diagram is is embedded in some transaction between us. Like I, I want to show you where something is, so I draw a little map, or I want to perform a calculation, so I, I make drawings of the individuals, and then we can count them all up together. 
um, or maybe I make a drawing to show you something. I, sh I show you how many cows by drawing a certain number of cows. But the thing about an art picture, as opposed to any old picture, is an art picture says, an art picture is a question. An art picture says, what am I a picture of? What, what is this? So art pictures can only happen against the background of not art practices of using pictures. So wherever we find ourselves, I think we find art. To imagine a past without art would be like imagining speakers of the language that couldn't make jokes or imagining mm. speakers of the language that couldn't be ironic, that couldn't use words wrongly on purpose. If you've got wrong as a concept, then you can play with wrong. And if you've got right as a concept, then you can play with what's right. And there's no language without the concept of right and wrong. Like, that's not how you say that. You can't say it that way, but then what if I did? What if I did just for fun, right? That's, that's the kind of place where art happens. So I think we've always been doing that. Now, you, you might ask the question, well, wasn't there some time, you know, in our evolutionary past when, when, um, when there wasn't art? Well, my, my answer to that is, as far as, Wherever we find us, wherever we find anything that is sort of psychologically recognizable as us, there must also be art. For there's no language without art. There's no making drawings without the possibility of playing with the drawings that we make. Sometimes I think that, um, you know what this is related to? So this is gonna be a little digression, but I think it's, it's related. There's this, this idea, which is actually an idea that was really important for Dreyfus, that there's a kind of, there's our first order, spontaneous, habitual involvements. And then there's reflectivity, when we reflect on what we're doing. And for Dreyfus, and he took himself to be representing the views of Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty, reflection disrupts first order flow and engagement. Reflection is kind of breakdown. And what we really want is just acting unreflectively with flow. Like if you're a jazz musician, you don't want to be thinking about what you're doing. If you're a shortstop, you don't want to be thinking about what you're doing. If you're, if you're a conversationist, you don't want to be self-conscious. You just want to be, you want the words to flow. But um, my basic thought is that, in a way, the basic thought of this book, The Entanglement, which, which, which is, I think, a very complicated idea that requires a lot of work to explain it adequately, the basic thought is that the second order, the reflective act, is already in some sense contained within and presupposed by the first order itself. The first order contains its own second order. To be a language user is to be able to deal with the problems of being a language user and to be, uh, and a, to be able to use pictures to advertise and document and annotate and record is also to be able to realize that pictures create questions that need a different kind of reflective exploration of what pictures are, namely an artistic exploration. Um, 
Human beings are never automata of the first order. We always are constantly reorganizing the first order through second order reflection. And what it is to be human always encompasses that or incorporates that second order reflection. The choreographic is always incorporated in dancing. The artistic is always incorporated in technology. Art is incorporated in design. Philosophy is incorporated in science. So there's this, there's this kind of, um, this is, so the notion of entanglement becomes this really rich, um, rich, rich idea. Um, I forgot how I got started on that. There was something I was, something more, something, there's a more local point you had asked that I was trying to come back to, but now I forgot the thread. I don't even remember the question that I asked anymore, but I am now wondering though, if this is where style fits in, yeah. uh, because just like uh, an artistic picture requires like this backdrop of non-artistic pictures, does style require some sort of backdrop of uh, standards and norms uh, for it to stick out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question that I, I think I don't actually have a good ready answer for exactly how style is coordinated with this point. Um, one of the interesting things about style, which plays a huge role in the book, is that Style, in a way, stands to the way we act in something like the way choreography stands to dancing. Um, why do I say that? Well, let's 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 go back. People have style. What does that mean? I think it's a mistake to tie the notion too tightly to fashion or music, mm -hmm. which is which is a natural assumption. Style is the way in which who we are gets reflected in the traces of what we do. So you can tell a person's you tell who who made the writing from the handwriting or who wrote individuality. What's that? Individuality. Individuality. But but not only individuality, but also group membership. So like there's, mm. you know, there's certain styles of painting which are identifiably Dutch and there's certain styles of painting which are just, if you know, if you have the training to see, just manifestly French. And you, um, so each of us has style, but style in a way is, is, is something like, um, it's a way of being which is visible to others and ourselves and so is a kind of intersubjectively shareable kind of image of ourselves or avatar. Um, really interesting question that I've wondered about for years is why are there different styles of speech? Like why is there such a thing as a New York accent or a London accent when 
people growing up in, in these major international cities are exposed to a huge variety of different ways of talking. Mm. Why, do, why do people talk different? And my, my, my proposal is that roughly they talk the way they think they're supposed to talk. And, and why, do, why, why do they think they're supposed to talk that way? Well, that's an interesting question. But we have a sort of a stylistic template or a kind of a score, and we then enact it. Um, and we enact it in ways that other people can, can perceive and imitate. So one of the ideas that I explore in the book is that, um, is that style is really a crucial notion for thinking about issues of identity. Um, for example, issues about gender identity and, and uh, racial identity. Um, that that these features c correspond to essentially styles of of being, and like, and style is always sort of problematic. Um, I can see style; it's visible, but it's also only skin deep. <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned Merleau-Ponty, I think with regard to to Dreyfus's views and maybe with regard to reflection as well. Yeah. But you also, you mentioned him in the book and you also mentioned Husserl, so a number of phenomenologists. And as I mentioned, I think at the outset of the, of our conversation, you work mainly at least, and you should correct me though, if, if you see things differently, in the analytic tradition for the philosophy of mind. So it's surprising to me because you don't often see Husserl and Merleau-Ponty uh, cited in works of analytic philosophy, why they are so relevant to your work in the philosophy of art here in the entanglement. Um, there are so many different ways to answer that. Um, I don't think that um, anybody has thought more carefully and deeply about consciousness in the 20th century than Husserl and Merleau-Ponty. Very interesting. Um, and if analytic philosophers haven't read them, well, shame on them. <laughs> you know, that's, that's just not. There are different traditions. When I, when I teach Merleau-Ponty, I, I usually, uh, at the beginning of the class, come with a huge stack of books, all the sort of giants about thought and perception, philosophy of mind of, of the 20th century since the Second World War. You know, I've got Davidson and Evans and Anscombe and Wittgenstein and Merleau-Ponty and, excuse me, not Merleau-Ponty, uh, Ryle and Dennett and Chomsky and you name them, I've got them all there. And the striking thing about all of these books is that they don't refer to Merleau-Ponty, um, even the ones written after his work was translated into English. Um, and that's a, that's a really striking omission. I mean, in the in the in the English philosophical tradition, I can only think of three writers or two writers really very early on corrected that. Um, one was um, Charles Taylor and the other was Hubert Dreyfus. 
they both referred to Merleau-Ponty, partly because he was educated in Canada with a very strong Francophone tradition, um, and Dreyfus because he was primarily a, one of the few analytic philosophers to be a phenomenologist. Um, I think that um, the uh, the um, it's a kind of a weird feature of British and American intellectual life that we've tended to ignore these other traditions. I mean, obviously, there's, there's explanations we can give, perhaps having to do with the Second World War and the migration histories and the different cultural divisions that, that happened in our world as a result of the war. But, um, but I would say that any, any philosopher interested in perception should read Merleau-Ponty um, and increasingly will be reading Merleau-Ponty as compared to when I was a student. But why, why do you think more particularly, what is it about Merleau-Ponty's approach to consciousness and perception that would preclude his being cited by the Dennett's, the Riles, the Chalmers, the, the people, well, you didn't actually mention um, Chalmers, but Chalmers. the people in the, in this big stack of books. Yeah, I don't think you'll find Merleau-Ponty in, in the index to Chalmers, to Chalmers, uh, the conscious mind. Um, uh, because there's something that you really value about the approach that other analytic philosophers haven't always or haven't always uh, found. Yeah, you know, I don't know whether I don't know whether the answer to this question is deep or superficial. Like whether it's just a sort of a sociological fact that we we read who our teachers told us to read, and and it was our teachers who sort of taught us what the problems were that we have. Um, from the beginning of my work as a young philosopher of mind, focusing on perception, I was engaged with the ways in which it seemed to me we were under-describing the phenomena that interest us, that we didn't have the vocabulary to do it justice, that we, weren't, that we were working with car cartoon examples and sim very simple-minded um, ways of sampling our experiential lives and talking about them. Um, this, is, this is something that Merleau-Ponty actually thematizes. He explores the ways in which we, um, the way in which prejudice essentially shapes the way we think about our own experiential lives. You know, we know that there's, there's two glasses and a book on the table in front of me and I see the two glasses and the book. So we assume that the, the, you know, that my experience is a kind of a representation of two glasses in a book, and we stop there. But there's so much more to be said about what I'm seeing and the asp aspects of my perception, its affective or conceptual or emotional side that are not touched on by two glasses in a book. Um, and um, So there, there are ways in which, in which, you know, for example, one of a quote from Merleau-Ponty that, in a way, could serve as my as my um, my motto. Is Merleau-Ponty says, "There's nothing harder than knowing what you see," and that's that's an idea that I would suggest that most analytic philosophers would not agree with. <laughs> so there's nothing easier than knowing what you see, you know. I'm looking at mm -hmm. the cup. 
the cup is what I see. End of story. Um, uh, so a lot of the work that Merleau-Ponty does is to invite us to discover the indeterminacy or multi-determinacy of our perceptual experience. Um, there are some analytic philosophers who I think came upon very similar ideas. I actually think that Anscombe, working very much in the spirit of Wittgenstein, um, came to appreciate ways in which there was a kind of irreducible indeterminacy in our perceptual lives that, uh, that we don't do justice to when we suppose that you know we see objects. Just the word object then becomes a placeholder for many different kinds of things that we can see. Um, and yet, finally, it may just be that these are very difficult writers um, and they haven't belonged to our curriculum, so we don't read them. Hmm. Well, I don't think that that was superficial at all, yeah. <laughs> actually. No, what, I meant by, um, but... what I meant by superficial was that it could just simply be our parochialism as a community. That you, mm -hmm. you only read things in English. So Merleau-Ponty's Phenomenology of Perception, which is his most important book, was published in 1945 in French. It wasn't translated into English until 1961 or 64 or something like that. It wasn't translated particularly well. Um, students in Oxford and Cambridge, England and Cambridge, Massachusetts didn't really feel they needed to pay attention to what was going on in Europe. They were they were satisfied with their own own approaches growing out of the reception of of the whole positivist tradition and um, how that shaped the way we thought about language and perception in Britain and the United States. So that stuff was just neglected. But we're way too late in human history to neglect it anymore. So that's 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 my view. So I encourage all of my students to familiarize themselves with that work. Where did Husserl, though, enter into the entanglement? Um, so throughout the book, I, I discuss Husserl in connection with a number of different ideas. Husserl is a, is a main source for some of my thinking about the concept of style. Um, but he's also a main inspiration for me for thinking about the nature of philosophy itself. Um, Husserl very often used the term reorientation to describe um, what philosophical research lets us achieve. It lets us reorient ourselves in relation to our own lives. Um, And we do work in philosophy to achieve those kinds of reorientations. Um, so we we have an everyday, we have a sort of a, a set of beliefs about the way the world around us is built up and made. But through philosophical reflection, we can try to look at that world and look at our beliefs and attitudes about the world in different ways. And for me, that reorientation is an interesting example of what I'm calling reorganization, um, and which I associate with the aesthetic. Um, by reorienting ourselves, 
what we're doing is we're cultivating resources for seeing what is there in new ways, for thinking about what is there before us in new ways, for seeing into things differently, for seeing what we couldn't see before. Now, I'm coming to the entanglement because Husserl also had this beautiful idea that philosophy is something we do vocationally. So just like you might you might serve as an umpire on your kid's Little League team or in a Little League game, and when you do that, you put on the umpire's hat and you become an impartial judge of who's safe and who's out and of what's going on in the game, and you stop. You, you're not functioning as your kid's dad. You're functioning as the, the umpire. Right. But then at the end of the day, you take your hat off and you go back to being partial to your kid. You go back to your to your um, everyday life as a dad. So what's interesting, though, is that when you when you in philosophy or through engagement with art make these kinds of reorientations, and then at the end of the day go back to your everyday life, your everyday life has been altered because you now know that reorientation is a possibility, that ways mm -hmm. in which you're different. So that gets wrapped up in your everyday. It gets entangled, in other words. Yeah. So there's a way in which Husserl's picture, as I understand it, helps us appreciate one of the ways in which philosophy and life are entangled. Once you've, once you've, like, once you've followed the philosophical train of thought, like once you've followed the cogito or whatever it might be, you can never regain the innocence you had before. A very interesting theme in, in Husserl, which is, an, I realize, a very, like a, it's a central topic that runs through my book, The Entanglement, has to do with the idea of the naive. You know, philosophy is always trying and has always been trying to sort of recover what ordinary people think about things, what, what we naively think, so that we can understand what we ought to think, um, whether it's Socrates interrogating his interlocutors about what they take courage or piety to be, or whether it's ordinary language, or ordinary language philosophers urging us to reflect on how we use words so that we can try to have an, a philosophically unbiased picture of what our conceptual schemes are. Philosophy is, is always kind of in the quest for what the sort of ordinary person on the street would say about perception. What is the naive view? What is the natural attitude? And, and an idea that you find in Husserl, I think, by the way, I don't consider myself a Husserl expert at all. I just, um, uh, I studied the, the crisis of the European sciences, which was his last book quite closely, but I don't consider myself overall an expert on Husserl. But, but an idea that he offers is that um, thanks to the well is is the is roughly the idea that we're not as naive as we think we are because after all we have a cultural history in which ideas get sedimented is that's a term he uses in our lives whether it's writing practices or mathematical practices or scientific practices, so that our, our, our ordinary life is in part shaped and organized by 
these these fruits of of science or culture. And that's also an example of, of what I would call entanglement. Um, and yeah, yeah. By the way, you might I just hear that my daughter is coming home. So there may be some doors slamming and dogs barking and kids shrieking. No problem. I think this is probably a, a great uh, place to stop, though. Anyway, when is the entanglement coming out in June? It, uh, I, um, I should know. I'll email you that. I don't know the exact, the exact, the exact. Okay, sounds good. But, then I'll mention it in the introduction. Yeah, fantastic. That'd be great if you could do. Um, it's coming out. Actually, Strange Tools has just been published in uh, in Italian, so I'm going off to Italy next week to give lectures about Strange Tools. And now the 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 um, the entanglement is coming out. Let me say. Uh... Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this has been really fun. Yeah, it's been, it's been my pleasure. And uh, congratulations to you for this project. Yeah. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.